In fact, possibly the right way to do it is uh, uh, to put it on YouTube, uh, but to mark it quiet so that anybody can get to it if we send them the link, but it was yeah. not shut okay. up anyway. Uh, okay, yeah, so that that's fine. people can't stumble on it. They have to know what it is. Um, you know, um, especially in my family, um, being Hindu and all, they find it quite concerning that I do meditation anyway. And, you know, um, they would be very concerned and it would probably cause some family problems if they find out I'm speaking to um, someone about Buddhism and stuff, you know? And my family yes, spent a lot of time online, so on YouTube, you know. I, I know exactly. <laughs> That's, in fact, you, you, you already told me that, but you didn't use those words. You just told me a little about your family. And yep. I, I understand that. Um, another clear example is I've got a student in Tunisia. That's all you need to know. Okay, yeah. Okay. And so he doesn't want his own. And so I, I respect that. And there's a lot of good reasons. I really uh, want to help people. You know, if people can benefit from it. I mean, even yesterday's video, you can do, you can do that. You can, do, um, you can put it as, um, as hidden and then just send it to people as they need. Um, Actually, the that. stuff that you and I discussed yesterday when you called about grief and um, uh, sympathetic grief, I actually told another student today uh, that we did video. Oh, great. Okay. I, remembered, I remembered that stuff. And so I talk, uh, spoke with another student. So his question was slightly different. And mm -hmm. so he wasn't quite in the thick of it like you were. But mm -hmm. it still was really beneficial to understand. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a really important topic, actually. Um, and I had no idea that it could go, you know, it was so, it was so um, intricate. Um, clockwork is like that. And this is kind of the clockwork of the mind. How the mm -hmm. thing actually works. What's the uh, the mechanism? And so, um, when I refer to Paticca Samuppada, uh, instead of translating it and leaving it with the translation of dependent origination or, uh, or dependent co-origination is another way of saying it, that I prefer to just call it the easy way is this is how the mind works. And when I'm talking about that, I'm not talking about necessarily the mind works like this is the work it does, but more like the iron works, like the iron foundry, or this is the basics, or this, these are the components or the pieces of the mind. This is, this is the mind's working and the works that are working. In. <laughs> and so um, all of my uh, uh, talks with students keeps all of this background noise in, uh, in reference that whatever I say fits in with this process uh, laid out by Patika Samupada. And that that's possibly a good segue into um, the issue of how things are translated into English. Now, somewhere I've given a fairly extensive talk on this, so I won't bother you too much with it 
other than for you to understand that that uh, Western Buddhism is first it's a hodgepodge of many different traditions, Zen and Tibetan and all of that, but also it's major uh, lingua franca. Uh, the language is English. And the things that got into English, the way they got into English, was not necessarily in a noble way. The way that it was, for instance, how... Uh, in the, from the Pali to the Chinese was done nobly. And we've got fairly good ideas of how that actually happened. That including not only was um, uh, Arahats and, and nobles, how they got to, uh, well, actually, no, much of the translations of um, uh, the Pali into Chinese was so good, so close, and so accurate that it's actually used as aids in translation in other languages. If okay. you go to a website like uh, uh, Suta Central, you'll see they have a massive library in Chinese. You want this Susta? Fine. You want it in English script? You want it in Chinese? You want it in <laughs> original yes, Pali? I've been on this what, website. What, 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 uh, um, it's a good one. script do you want it in in the Pali? Do you want it in Sinhalese? You need it in Burmese? You need it in Thai? And so they've got all of these various things have been put together. But the point that I'm making is, is that in some of the Chinese stuff was really, really old. And that it was translated or transmitted in two ways. One was that nobles went from India into China. And then the other way was is that some of the Chinese got uh, so into it that they went back to India. Oh. And so there was an Indian component in the uh, Buddha Sangha uh, well within 100 years of the Buddha. And a lot of those really old Chinese translations are quite useful. Yeah, I can imagine. That's okay. 100 years is not long at all. Uh, the, now, uh, Mahayana Buddhism has been in Thailand since 700 AD. But in oh, fact, okay. not far from here is a World Heritage, um, um, uh, what do they call it, museum yep. that uh, is dedicated to Mahayana stuff from the 7th to the 9th century, and they know so much history about it. I've got a friend over at Watsu and Mo who really delves into this. This is part of his joy is uh, um, how um, Buddhism grew up in Southeast Asia and what are all of the historical things that are associated with it. Mm -hmm. um, there are people who were interested in that kind of stuff, just like uh, um, British scholars would be interested in the details of what happened at the Battle of Hastings, for instance. Yep. Okay. They go right into the very detail of it. So we've got know, I that. I think it's really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, there was also a connection. By the way, uh, they don't have uh, this... This area that I'm talking about in Thailand, in South Thailand, in the 7th century, was associated with the Sri Jaya um, Empire in Indonesia at the time. And okay. that, was slow, that was also uh, closely associated, even in those days, all the way up to the 14th century, with Angkor. Angkor what? And so, 
Angor, right? Well, Watt, the Watt is just one of the small aspects of Angor. Angor oh, right. is huge. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, they speak of it as Angor Watt, but uh, hey. Angor, um, it was a city of approximately a million people, they say. Wow. At a time when London had 20,000. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's really impressive. Okay. Well, if you don't know the history of a place, then when we find spectacular things like that, and so I've got a kind of a love for this, this history, but that's not the point that I was, was going for. The point that I was going for is that throughout all of Southeast Asia, uh, into China, that it has been a noble transmission into English, though, through Riles Davies and all of that, it was not a noble transmission. It was a translation issue. Okay. All right. So imagine this as an example. Can you imagine a very, very a highly important, detailed uh, scientific um, uh, document hey, on nuclear physics written in German? How are we going to get that document that actually puts together enough to, information to get a bomb going? How are you going to get that into English language? Are you just going to take some college kid who knows both English and German really well and have him do the translation? Are you going to get a physicist? Exactly. Right. Okay. This is what was missing from the original literature getting translated into English is, is that they lacked the understanding of what they were translating. And so they used terms that they were familiar with and did the best job they could. But we're straddled with much of that language now. And meditation is one of them. Concentration is another. Monk, robe, bowl, nun, temple, uh, really? chanting, all of these words come out of Christianity and have really nothing to do with Buddhism in general. All of those that you just said. How so? Are mistranslation. Wow. So you asked me why do I avoid the word meditation is because that's not a good translation word for what we're practicing. Okay. That sometimes we do some kinds of meditations intentionally. Yeah. But that's all the Christians do. Where we've got a whole lot more stuff going on. There's a lot more going on. It's just one part of it. It's not just, it's not the focus. It's not the goal in itself. Right. Yeah, okay. See, and I you thought... could also... You could also go to the point uh, in a kind of a humorous way is to say that when the uh, practitioner of Anapanasati falls into hindrance, he starts to meditate. Ah. And another word would be to cogitate, to meditate, to cogitate, to think over, to mull over a topic. And the Christians actually do that, to mull over a topic like the Trinity or the grace of Mary or some other topic of conversation like that. And so they, they think about a topic 
And this is what is meditate, meditating upon things. And so naturally, when they see monks squat and, and meditate and cogitate and pray and to do that kind of stuff, and then they see the Buddha sitting there silently, they're going to start using a whole lot of language to describe what these Buddhists are doing with the language that they know. Because they only really have, they don't really have anyone to explain it to them properly. Precisely. Okay, yeah. Okay, that was exactly right. And to now is not too late, but it is almost too late. You and think? here's part of the reason why it's too late is I, even myself, will translate words in in the in the standard English way rather than their actual way of usage. So I even, even though you know it all. Even, even though, though you know I know it, because I've already gone into the habit of using the words English. that don't translate well. A really important one is dukkha. Dukkha does not mean suffering. Yeah, I've read that. It, it can mean a whole range of things, but they never. But in English, they never quite, they never quite um, get it exactly right. A very good word that we could use to point to uh, the actual meaning of the word is by using the word dissatisfaction. And that the opposite of dukkha is sukha. And sukha is mentioned in many, many places, including it's part of the first jhana, and it's also part of Anapanasati practice. So you can think of that sukha was a major, major issue for the Buddha. Oh, that's it, so interesting, because um, my, my family's language, Gujarati, right? Okay. Um, the word dukkha means pain, but we we refer to it as both mental and physical pain if we if we're experiencing it. And then okay. if someone's doing well, if someone's like in good health, you know, they're happy, we say they're they are suki, which is kind of like sukha. Well, I well, didn't know that was in Gujarat. I didn't know that. But I do know that that's true in in the in the Thai language that they've also adopted that. But more than likely, it was uh, because of common usage of Buddhist terms in uh, Thailand that that came about to be a common word. But in Gujarat, it's the original language. Yeah. That that's um, buried down into the original language, this duke and suk. You're saying suki, which is sukha. It's the yeah. same word. Pretty okay. much. I mean, and I think the meanings have been. And suk. I think I think there's like a slight difference in in what they mean because you know, duke we say we we also use it for the for physical pain, whereas in in the in Pali it was about um, dukkha was about mental issues. Um, oh, so you're saying that you don't know where that scripture is? It says that part of the classical definition of dukkha is old age sickness and death oh yeah. lamentation grief oh yeah and pain oh yeah wow and then he gets a little bit more lightweight like wanting things you don't have 
So in that regard, it's the whole range in your language of Gujarat as well as the original Pali. Yeah. Okay, so so we did actually sort of... It hasn't actually been lost in Gujarati for the most part. (laughs) Ah, that's... In the old original languages, there was not much distinction between mental pain and physical pain. That in fact, in our normal language, most people don't know the distinction between mental pain and physical pain. This is something that only a wise person can investigate. We're taught that we can investigate and see, oh, yes, that's right. Just because the body has that sensation doesn't mean that I have to be in the state of pain. Yeah. I've been in, um, in, uh, meditative states where pain hasn't really meant the same as it usually does in that sense where the pain has existed but it was it it didn't really cause any problems at all Mm -hmm. it was just kind of there like it was just there so this is a good good point for you because this is actually right in your original language and that it does not, now that you understand what we're talking about, it does not mean the word, English language word, suffering. Yeah. That, that the word suffering has to do with basically what Jesus did while he was nailed to the cross. Mm. And that the whole religion of Catholicism is based around the suffering of Jesus so that you don't have to suffer Except that, yes, you do, because now you've got all of this guilt. And so they, they kind of around with it. Um, and, and one of the jokes is, is that when, Protestant, when the Protestants came along and got the actual Bible for themselves, they said, wait a minute. And they unnailed him and let him float off into the air. But as soon as that happened, the Catholics grabbed him by the foot and drug him back and nailed him back up to their cross. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> All right. So this, uh, this, this quality of translating dukkha into the word suffering is not a, not a useful tool for most people. If you, if you say, oh, I've got Buddhism here for sale, you know, <laughs> minus 25 cents. If I give you a quarter, will you listen to what I have to say? <laughs> and um, then he says, um, you, there is suffering. And the guy says, no, there's not. I'm not suffering right now. Mm-hmm. But if you ask him the question, do you ever get dissatisfied? And now 100% of the people will say, yes. Because that's what this is for, is for the elimination of dissatisfaction and coming into a state of satisfaction. And that can happen as soon as you remember to do it. Mm. That it's not something to be attained after many years or hours of sitting and squatting on the floor in a particular posture that people are calling meditation. That, in fact, the people who are sitting and squatting and doing meditation will probably never come out of their suffering. I mean, just look at what they're doing. (laughs) So then why, why is it done so much in the monasteries? Which monasteries? Like, for example, um... I only know 
Pa Alk because I went there back in 2016. You know the you know Pa Alk monastery in in uh, Myanmar. No, in Myanmar. In Myanmar, uh, Pa Alk Seador. Um. They practice the Visuddhi Maga jhanas. And um, yeah, it's a. Uh, there's a lot of meditation done there. Right. I don't know about the others, though. Well, we could go off into the left turn of uh, uh, Bhikkhu Buddhaghosa and the Vasudhi Maga, um, and how. I mean, I don't I know anything that, about it myself. Basically, uh, it was king in Southeast Asia. Uh, but when Bhikkhu Buddhadasa in the 1930s started finding holes in it and finding uh, issues with it, I think that over a many period of years, he began to throw all of it out until when he was an old man, he was to the point of saying that this is needed on the, the trash heap. Okay. But that was a process that he went through. Yeah. Uh, in in the sense that, that that was just ordinary Buddhism. It still is in Burma and Sri, in Sri Lanka. Uh, but he put them back on the path of the suttas. That okay. let's look at what the suttas have to say and let's yeah. not look at what's in the Vasudhimaga. Okay, yeah, that's that's good. And the, the Vasudhimaga has many, many problems with it. And one of the problems ultimately is, is that it does not lead to liberation the way that they're practicing it. Okay. When in fact you can become liberated immediately just by changing your attitude or your mind. But you have to keep practicing that over and over and over again because of all of this personality stuff that's been built up over the years, which the Buddha stuff. calls Sankara. Yep. And so this is the way of, of practicing according to uh, the Anapanasati Sutta, giving rise specifically to the first jhana with all of the pieces and bits together, uh, uh, also referenced in a number of other suttas. It also points how the Eightfold Noble Path is actually practiced to do the Anapanasati, and then Anapanasati itself is for the fulfillment of the seven, excuse me, the four foundations of mindfulness, and that the Anapanasati is built that way, the body, the feelings, the mind, the mind's objects, and that we practice Anapanasati for the fulfillment so that we can see these various components within the, uh, the human without just thinking, oh, this is all me. We start to do an investigation. And then later we do even more of an investigation down to the five aggregates, which would then be defined as personality, to see that <clears throat> there is no anywhere in any of these five aggregates of personality do you actually find a root or a, a core or a cause or a... Um, uh, um, the bottom of who am I? It keeps moving around. But one thing that we know is the body itself is not me. Yep. If the body itself is not me, because we can't make it old or young or big or strong, we don't know how to make ourselves feel that the, feel, the feelings just run amok. 
And then we just, that's who I am. I'm angry mm. or I'm sad. All right. So we identify with the feelings, but in fact, the feelings run us around. We're not in charge of our feelings at all. So they're not my feelings. So when we, if there's any I in there, it belongs to the feelings. So when we change them, when we remember, you know, it's not me, I can change this. Um, and then you do change it. Does it, is that a form of suppression or like repression or anything that will cause problems later on? Or is it, um, not really. If you put out a fire, are you in danger of burning down the forest because you put out a fire? Oh, so it's like that. <laughs> okay. I don't know where this suppression of feeling issue came from. I guess that in English at one time, everybody would stuff up her lip and uptight. And then they would explode because they weren't able to manage the feelings that they had been suppressing. And a lot of Indians as well. Okay, so... What we're doing here is completely different. We're not suppressing feelings. We're yanking them by the root in this instant and throwing them out. Okay. We're not putting up with them. We're not being full it's of anger, gritting it. our teeth and, and not expressing the anger. We're, in fact, throwing the anger itself right out and bringing our mind to a joyful state. Okay. And I think that's how a lot of people are confused because they think that it's wrong to suppress feelings. Well, we're not re re suppressing them. We're actually taking control over them the way that you would train a dog. Yep. And everybody agrees that some dogs or every dog that's going to live with people has got to have a, a, a few, uh, not so many, but a few rules. Some of yep. them become trick dogs. Yep. But to say, oh, you can't train that dog to behave himself, that's suppressing his bowel movements by not letting him crap on the floor. I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> We're not suppressing his bowel movements. We're pointing the direction he should go in. Thanks. And by the way, if you let the dog out of the house, the dog will naturally not crap on your floor. The only reason the dog craps on the floor is because he can't get out to do Stuck it where he likes it. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to train a dog to poop outdoors, put him outdoors and let him enjoy the place. Let him enjoy it. Exactly. So um, this is a way of talking about that then, is to imagine that your emotional system is like a pet a pet dog, and when the dog is barking, you want to check out what's the dog barking about. If mm -hmm. it's actually dangerous, he's doing a good job. He's on guard. He's barking. He saw something. But if you check it out and recognize, nope, there's no problem there, nothing to fear, then we can say, down, boy. Down, mm -hmm. boy. Okay, most people do not, do not know how to do that with their feelings. Yeah, calm back so down. Who's in charge here? <laughs> is the frontal cortex or is it this feeling system that's in charge? Mm. And most people uh, learn how to train a dog correctly, but they don't learn how to train their own mind using basically the same techniques. Dogs are actually a whole lot easier to train. <laughs> I bet. Today, in fact... Uh, uh, 
resting, taking a nap. And the dogs came in and lay down on the floor. Mm-hmm. Then they laid down next to my bed. And then one climbed up to lick, mm-hmm. lick my face. And then another one, you know, and so now both dogs are absolutely flat on the bed. Mm-hmm. And so um, I call Tam. And Tam? <laughs> Tam is uh, my, my partner, my wife. And, okay. uh, and she came in and all she did was point her finger. Right. And, and we just thought it was so hilarious. Both dogs get off the bed. Uh-huh. Well, that trained. well trained. Right. That, that I don't take and get them off the bed, but I'll call Tam if she's here and she'll get them off the bed every time. Mm-hmm. So she doesn't want them on the bed. She's trained them well. So. Um, this is an example that yes, dogs can be trained that easy. They were actually quite gentle about even getting on the bed, knowing that Tam was home. Uh-huh. But as soon as she came in the room, <laughs> they're getting up off the bed. <laughs> <laughs> she, she heard what I just said, just looking and smiling at me. Yeah. <laughs> so if we can train the dogs like that, and we never hit them, we yeah. never yeah. scold them. Yeah. And so we can train uh, our own minds that way. Same Here's, thing by the mind. way, something that might be useful as an example. There are two ways of training a horse. There is the cowboy way of training the horse. And then there's the Eastern European way of training the horse. Now, I don't know worldwide how it's done, but mostly it's the cowboy way. And, and what they do is they put the horse in a corral. Then they put a saddle on and they put a bridle on and the guy jumps on him and then they wait until the horse settles down and he bonk, you know, he bonk and try to get the, the guy off. And yeah. they, they work for six or seven days like that until they get the, the horse the to horse settle is, down. Yeah. There's another way, and that is that I've seen a movie about it a long time ago. It may have even been a Disney movie, but these, this is the... Uh, the very high-stepping, prancing white horses and the way that they're trained. Uh, I think this has something to do with Liechtenstein. Not sure. But instead of a corral, it's a huge, massive barn that they lead the the young horse into. Uh, And the first thing that they do is they put a very, very lightweight training bridle on him just to lead him in, in there. But that's all that they've done. Now the trainer comes in, and the first thing he does is he offers the, the, the young horse an apple. And then he touches him and, and gets familiar with him, and he spends some time with him. And then eventually he picks up the bridle and starts to walk the horse around, which the horse is okay to go with him. Mm. The next day, the, um, or um, a little later, after the trainer and the horse has spent lots and lots of time together, the trainer will wear a saddle on his shoulder, a little oh. tiny saddle, but he'll wear a saddle on his shoulder. And he'll show, and he'll look at the horse and said, look, I've got a saddle, you know, and you want it? And the horse looks at it and he smells it and he checks it out and the little saddle is lifted and the horse can see it. And after that, then the horse uh, is standing there. The, the trainer will put this little saddle on the horse. No must, no fuss, doesn't bridle it, or it doesn't uh, put the cinch on yet. And in fact, he never 
really cinch the horse the way they do in the West. They have to, if they're going to ride a bucking bronco, they've got to really cinch that horse, get that saddle on real tight. Mm-hmm. But this kind of saddle, no, they just kind of put it on his back, and now they prance him around with that saddle on his back for a day or so. And then they put the next day a light cinch on it, and now they bring a young uh, child who has already been trained, who's part of the program, and his job is to not do anything to startle this pony, but just to get on him. And so the human, the big guy, will take and put this kid on top of the uh, the back of the horse to give him just a little bit of weight. Yeah, weight. Train him just gently, okay? And guess what? Within seven days, the, uh, the trainer himself will be able to ride that horse without wow. that horse ever having any bad feelings about it. Yep. So one is just brutal. It's brutal yeah. for the cowboy and it's brutal for the horse. This other yeah. way, okay. Now getting back to that word meditation, which way are you going to train your mind? I'd like to do it the better way. <laughs> okay, so now that you have this analogy, treat yourself really well. Yeah. Everything is a success. Yep. Many students think of what they're doing as a failure if they're not doing it often enough. Yep. But really, whenever you recognize the mind has wandered away, that should be a joyful moment. That's a new apple. Rather than worrying about how the mind had wandered away, no, that's already in the past. That's gone. The wake up, that's what's new. That's what's really valuable. That the mind has been wandering away for years now. It's just been off in the pasture doing its thing. So mm-hmm. there's no reason to feel bad or to beat that poor horse simply because he's doing what he does naturally. But there is going to be a training process. We are going to begin to train this horse. But we do it very gently. And the way that the key point is such a key point. Aha, I see you. I see you. That's an important quality here. That's like giving the horse an apple. Mm-hmm. And it also is getting the horse's at, um, mind off of the pasture that he was in. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, uh-huh, I see you, Myra, is actually an important really quality important do that. That, uh, that we recognize. That's actually doing two things. One, sati, and two is investigation. I just saw it. I, now I'm looking at the mind. I can investigate. I can see what's happening. And the outcome of that is, aha, I see you, Myra. I know you. There you are. You're just the wandering mind all making me unhappy or, or whatever, or just giving me work to do that I don't need to do. And so we come back into a state of homeostasis, into a state of joy. Mm-hmm. And we do this over and over and over again. And as we do, we develop the attitude that I can do this. Yep. That's the right attitude. I can do this over and over and over again to the point that it doesn't matter how m- uh, much the mind gets um, uh, obstructed, crowded. I can still, at least one time now, bring it back. And, and if the hindrances come right back again, I can catch it again. Bring and it if the hindrances come back, back again, I can catch it again. 
And now we're beginning to get confidence so that no matter how often that hindrance comes back or how big a deal that it feels like that we can get by this mm. so that you feel that I've got that confidence that I can feel the way that I want to feel is basically the bottom line of this. Why should we feel dissatisfied when it's merely a choice that we make to feel satisfied instead? All right, great. That's really all there is to it is to come into a state of satisfaction. But that's a, uh, that satisfaction is really, really boosted when it has the quality of being a winner or the quality of I can do this. Mm-hmm. An example is a prize fight. At the end of the prize fight, both of them are really glad the fight's over. Before the fight began, they're both chomping at it. But at the end, after the fight's over, they're both really glad that fight is over. All right. But one of them is satisfied because he won. The other guy who lost it, he is probably not so satisfied. Mm. It's like sports. Any sport. Now, it can get complicated. Um, and one of the complications would be like in the movie Cool Hand Luke, to where this big burly prisoner just would not stop, uh, or he was unstoppable for Cool Hand Luke. That every time Cool Hand Luke got back up, he got knocked down again. And he kept getting up and getting knocked down again. He kept getting up and knocked down again over and over and over again until the warden finally brought it to a stop. So even though Cool Hand Luke lost that fight physically, he won it so in another really up. big way because he kept coming back and coming back and coming back. And that's the kind of the attitude that we have. It's a real winner is keep coming back. What's that movie? Cool Hand Luke. Cool Hand Luke. Okay. If you've got a big library, it's an old movie, so it's out of copyright, I'm sure. Okay. I'll have a look for it. It's got a lot of really good stuff. If you're into being a Dhamma dude, it, it's got a lot of Dhamma oh, in yeah? it. Oh, yeah? Okay. Yeah. And this is one of them. He kept getting up and getting up. Um, I should actually write it down before I forget. Cool hand, Luke. Okay. Thanks. It's got a lot of Dhamma. I won't go into the details of some of the Dhamma things that are in there, but there's a snake. <laughs> okay. A snake. <laughs> yeah. And he picks it up and intentionally holds it by the wrong end. Intentionally? Intentionally, he grabs it by the tail and holds it out because he wants the warden to take a shot from 20 or 30 feet away and kill that snake. Because, see, if Cool Hand Luke gets bit by the snake, it's the warden's fault. Oh. Now, that's cool. Cool Hand Luke is really cool in that's, this movie. That's like, <laughs> that's like the whole not having any fear. Fearlessness, yes. Wow. And that's one of the major jobs that the Buddha gives, becoming fearless which means stop being afraid of the kinds of things that we have been instinctually afraid of and been trained to be afraid of. 
So if you if you notice that you've had, you know, if you've if you've noticed that the mind's been you know doing all this stuff and you haven't been present, but if if all the thoughts that you had were still good, then should you still try to let go of them? Always, whenever you recognize that this thought, it has the possibly the easiest way to understand it is exactly the way that Goanka teaches it in this way. If the mind has wandered away from the breath, that's the key. If the mind has wandered away from the breath, in other words, if you're off someplace, and this happens all day long. This is a normal state of being. People in their mind is, is uh, so unfocused that it's not on the breath. The easiest way to keep it on the breath is by intentionally taking a long breath as an in-breath and a long out-breath. If we keep doing this over and over and over again, then the mind doesn't wander away, and it's really much easier to catch. But if the mind has wandered away from the breath, how do we know that? When, what, what is that point in time that because before it was just wandering oh. but now we know that we have woken up this is, this is that point of sati we so recognize should... that the mind has wandered away from the breath so you and should um... go ahead so even even for example in this conversation should still be with the breath well i am okay Okay, that's good to know. Not everyone, but frequently enough. Yeah. People coming back. <clears throat> It'd be for me kind of hard to talk about it if I wasn't already doing it. <laughs> <laughs> it, just, it, it just seems like if you're focused on the breath, then it's harder to focus on the task at hand. You'd be surprised how many mind moments you have. You'd be surprised at how fast the mind really is. That in fact, I'm both back and forth watching this out breath as I'm describing to you that I can do more than one thing at a time. And now I'm quite at the end of that out breath. And so I'm about to take an in breath. <laughs> okay. So that way is a way of, yes, we can do a whole lot of stuff. The mind is fast. The Buddha has a, a sutta that I really dearly love. This is a good one. He says, and, and this is in the Anguttara in the ones. And, and oh, this okay. one thing is I, the mind. I, I read it then. The mind, oh monks, is fast. It is so fast, I don't have an analogy for how fast it is. That's in the ones. I don't remember that, but there Mind are a lot is of things. fast, old monks. Well, that's about the whole suit, and you don't talk about one thing, the mind, and how fast it is, with no analogies. The mind, old monks, is fast. It's so fast, I don't even have an analogy for it. Well, if that's true, and, I, and the more you watch, the more you'll see how much can be done in the time and space of one breath. 
can watch your thumb twiddle. You can watch the itch on your foot. You can watch the feet on uh, being flat on the floor. You can still have a conversation and describe all of this stuff while I'm having this out-breath. I mean, I can do a whole lot of stuff with an out-breath. Okay, that's, yeah. And this is what we do with Anapanasati is we use the breath as an anchor so that it's always there. And in fact, there's two points with every breath that's a point of sati. That is to know that this is an in-breath. That's sati, to know that this is a long, deep in-breath. And then the next point of sati is to know that this is a long, deep out-breath. And between that time, there's tons of time for a fast mind to do all kinds of stuff, including wandering away. <laughs> yep. Okay, great. Thanks. And so the mind wanders away. Never mind. Bring Sati back joyfully. Aha! Here's another apple for this pony who's just been off someplace. But he came back and he got an apple. Mm. So feed your pony. Aha, I see you. You know, and we take a bit of joy. We keep practicing that joy over and over and over again, and it leads to deep satisfaction and deep feelings of success. And with that success comes a feeling of gratitude as well as a feeling of security. And perhaps we can even add the word wealth. We feel really wealthy. Now, I'm not talking about having a lot of money. Yeah, but in sure. fact, people who have a lot of money don't feel wealthy. They may feel rich and they have a lot of money, but they're not really that kind of secure. Uh -huh. But this is a deep level of satisfaction and security that comes from being able to manage our own mind. Not forever, but right now I can. And next time I can do it. And time after time, I keep practicing over and over again. Whenever I catch the mind wandering away, I come back, mm -hmm. start again. Gladdening the mind, taking a deep breath, getting the mind fit for work. That's been very helpful. Great. All right. Well, we'll see you in a few days and keep practicing. Enjoy. Yeah, sure. All right. Good speaking to you. Thank you.